Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Sabrina here, and I am here with Joe Withy, full-time head of quality and compliance, part-time researcher, and a lover of leadership and education lecturer at HE level. Joe is going to talk to us about supporting early career teachers and what is the solution. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Right, so as I mentioned, we are so lucky today. We're going to be talking about some of the problems and issues faced in early career teaching. Um, Joe is really um, well researched in this. So Joe, would you just give us a little background about how you came to studying and being so knowledgeable around early career teaching and kind of coaching and mentoring? Uh, yes, yeah, so my initial experience other than going through the process myself and being an early career teacher and making it through um, probably eight years now I'm into the profession um, but initially I did a master's in leadership and education which had a really good coaching and mentoring module that um, was really eye-opening to me in terms of the difference between coaching and mentoring in terms of what coaching and mentoring actually was in the kind of discrepancies that I was seeing within my reality um, so this encouraged me to delve deeper into not just what coaching and mentoring was but also how it can be applied to support the issues that I felt FE faced which was definitely retention and that I've of course gone into the statistics and looked through it all now on a national scale but at the time it was as simple as me just wondering why my cohort that I trained with in further education are no longer there I think about there was only five out of the 20 that were still working in FE over five years later. So that was the real trigger for me to think about, oh, what is it that could support these people? Because they're really, really good practitioners are really successful within the sector. And I thought it'd be great to see how could we hone that talent. You get a lot of talent in secondary schools who remain have very long careers, but you don't always see that journey in FE. It tends to be people coming in and out of the sector. But I was thinking just how could we really retain these people and build something with these individuals to go on to have these careers so that was the, the initial of it and then I went on to following complete my master's I began a doctoral research doing an ed d within 
um, coaching and mentoring and looking at this as my thesis project, which I'm three years into and should finish within the next two years, hopefully. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've got lots and lots of um, available information around coaching mentoring because it seems to be the buzzword. It seems to be something that is often used in strategies, in long-term planning for organisations. And it wasn't necessarily something you heard maybe 15 years ago in, in the sector. So what has made it so important? And in terms of coaching and mentoring, like why is it such a, a crucial element for retention, in your opinion? Um, I think it's due to the improvements that it can make holistically, as well as just performance-wise, because I think a lot of people think of coaching and mentoring as just just well, again, when they interchange it, a lot of people think of it as, oh, how can it improve performance of an individual? And if they're a better teacher, they're going to stay within the profession. Or if they're a better teacher, they're going to enjoy their job more. So you tend to get this approach of people just giving support in terms of let me help you mark books. Let me help you. Um, let me help you prepare for lessons. Come and watch my lesson and you can learn what I do well in terms of behavior management. Then you can emulate that in your lesson. And people tend to take away the voice of the coachee or the mentee in terms of asking them, what would you like me to support you with? And I feel that tends to get missed. And I think that's where the real power of coaching and mentoring is. Sometimes it's, do you just need someone to rant to? That could be a great role of a mentor. They can get all their concerns out. They can just sit and listen, absorb that information and give them support where required. Sometimes they may not even need support. They may just need that space with a trusted individual to open up to and I think that's where the real power of coaching and mentoring comes from is the encouragement of allowing them to direct their learning rather than being told oh I've worked in FE before you're definitely going to need this you're definitely going to need that and just giving them all this information of things that they think they need to get through but they're not actually listening to that individual and I think that's where coaching and mentoring really comes into its own refining that element of I'm here to support you. I want you to direct your journey. If they say, oh, I don't know what I need support with. Um, can you give me some recommendations? Then yeah, feel free to. But I think it's that element where coaching and mentoring is really crucial and could really help individuals in this situation. So when you when you mention, you know, the kind of the coachee or mentee led development or support, what happens when you face um, especially early career teachers who might not necessarily know what they don't know or might not know how or what they need support with. So is there a, a kind of method or a strategy that organisations should factor in for really early career people that have just come out um, of the, doing a qualification that need to quickly adapt and acclimate? Is it, yeah. What would you do in those kind of situations? Yeah, I think it's being aware of how the relationship transitions as a good coach and mentor and that level of involvement allowing them to recognize that because you get that kind of generic I'm going to tell you what to do to be a better teacher throughout the PGCE because depending on the route you take whether you do a one-year externally then get a job in a college after or if you do the kind of two-year program where you get in-house training while on the job which is quite traditional in FE you get that kind of mentoring as man as with the program you get assigned a mentor they do your observations they have meetings with you 
so that's when you'll get most of the this is what I think you'll need here's all of this information and then as time goes on as they become more experienced probably about a year a year and a half a year and a half in that's when they'll start to develop hopefully their own ideas of what they're good at what they're not so good at they'll also have their feedback from observations to give them indication of what they're good at and what they're not so good at and it's around this point where hopefully the relationship starts to transition and then they be, they're able to develop more of a voice on what it is that they require and then they can start being more vocal so in terms of what you generally see is it's generally completely mentoring at the start for the first one one and a half years where they just want information and you provide that information to them and then once they finish their PGCE and they start their first year as an early career teacher that's when you generally see the transition to coaching because you start to have mentors who say right I've provided you everything I know about teaching an FE and I've given you all of my secrets so to speak now I'm still here use me as you want but you're gonna have to come to me with questions about where you want to take your development next and then of course that's when the coaching element comes in because they may not have the experience to support that with them but they're good at asking the right questions and enabling them to find out the right support for example if they asked um oh i'm not very good at behavior management what can i do to support that and the teacher's not particularly good with behavior management you would ask them questions like how do you think you could develop that and then you'll encourage them to find resources or find a teacher to pair up with or um, pair them up with another early career teacher who's particularly good with that so that's generally the way the relationship goes but in terms of the question if um, they're still not um, they still just want to know information then that's completely fine as well because again all we want to do is react to what these individuals want so if they say oh i'm not sure what i want developing then that's where you as a mentor can keep recommending techniques you can keep um demonstrating new things to them you can put them and create relationships with different people to put them into different classes to develop more of a worldly idea so it's yes yeah, very much about being person-centered in the approach and recognizing or not even recognizing it's being open with them and discussing what they want, what information they gain, where they're at in their development. And if they're saying, oh, I don't know what I want to work on, start asking them the coaching questions. What have you struggled with this week? What's been the biggest success this week? What's the biggest weakness? And then once they answer their biggest weakness, then you can open a conversation about and try to find out why that was a weakness. Then once you found that out, you can then start to develop ways to approach overcoming that weakness. So does this incur you know a, a cost of time from both parties then that needs to be factored in budgeted in um for organizations yeah and that's definitely one of the biggest issues that i'm coming across in my interviews for my research and my experience in trying to coordinate these things within institutions it's generally falls down to the most available person which isn't always the best approach because again this person might not have these skills it also generally falls down to the best teacher so if you've identified who the best teacher is you say oh you're going to make a great mentor which is true from a knowledge experience and skills aspect however 
is that individual going to be able to give the time to this person? Is this individual going to be able to recognize where their weaknesses are? Are they going to be able to understand the person enough to be able to provide good coaching? So one thing that is very important for institutions to commit to is that element of providing time and being creative in terms of how they can provide that time, but also how to provide that training. And that's another hidden cost that there is. A lot of institutions do really good in-house training. If they've got a qualified coach or an experienced coach, they can run their own in-house training, which is essentially free. Um, that would that can be really, really helpful and to avoid that hidden cost of training them up. But I think there absolutely has to be an element of training in this and there needs to be an element of dedicating time to this, which yeah can be a huge issue because a lot of the feedback I get is I don't feel like my coach or my mentor wants to be there. And then that opens up the feelings of not feeling important, not mm. feeling valued, which contributes to if they're feeling that in the classroom anyway, and that's the thing that's starting to drive them out of the sector when they're asking for help, if they're feeling that as well from the person assigned to help them, then that's going to be a huge factor in making your decision whether or not you're going to stay within the sector. So yeah, it's definitely something institutions need to consider. How can they create unprotected, well, how can they create protected time, sorry, for that institution to have this? And that will be a cost analysis for them to do, but you need to make that decision of what's more important to you um, as an institution and what that structure looks like. So when when we're thinking about EFI, so we don't really need to follow the early career framework, whereas obviously in, in, I assume in schools that that's there to guide um, their new staff. How different is it in terms of being an early career teacher in a in a school um, to what it is in further education? Well, I think the statistics speaks for itself on that one. Um, so within the FE sector, as evidenced by the 2021 Further Education Workforce Analysis, 53% um, of the teachers that trained in the sector in 2015 were no longer teaching after five years. So that's only 43% of people remain, 47% um, of people that actually remained after five years who trained within that sector, within that time period. However, in a secondary school, it was 30% higher and 33% more people stayed um, than in FE. So that really highlights to me the absence of that extra year of support. You do have QTLS within FE, which some people sort of use as um, an early careers um, framework or NQT, yeah, so to speak, in old terms. Um, so, the, But it doesn't really provide as robust a support. And again, it's very kind of external in the mentor selected is generally um, your line manager or someone available, you don't really get that dedicated support like you do on the early careers framework. So, yeah, I think there is a huge gap in terms of that. I think that's something that would make quite a lot of difference if um, there was an extra year to kind of support you in that transition. And there's another bit of research regarding this, which is um, was done in 2015, which I found really interesting. Um, so there's two bits of research, um, one by Elia who, who essentially done research with 10 experienced lecturers from four FE institutions 
into the transition from trainee teaching into a qualified teaching role. And the essential conclusion was that they described the process through metaphors of abandonment, puzzlement and wow. fear, which was because they felt they were left to their own devices, often with no induction or guidance once the support of mentorship of initial teacher training concluded. But if you look, look at their responses and other research that's conducted during the training period, it's all very positive, they feel very supportive. But the moment that's gone, you get abandonment, puzzlement, fear as the describing words. So it does in the research does indicate as a very sharp transition from, oh, this is going really well. I really like my job. Um, everyone's supportive to I'm on a full time contract. That person who is my assigned by mentor is no longer as accessible because, again, they're not being paid or they're not having the protected time or they no longer see me as a trainee because we're essentially if they're a teacher, they may think, oh, well, we're being paid the same, then they can support themselves now. Um, again, all these things potentially contribute to this real sharp transition of I'm now on my own. I'm a full time teacher, whereas in secondary school, it's a lot more gradual kind of fade process into becoming a full time teacher rather than I'm training. Everything's lovely. I'm a full time teacher. Now I'm very worried. And I think that sharp change is mm. what is in like igniting those feelings of oh this isn't going too well and then as that compounds over a five-year period gets to that stage where it's like you know what this is enough for me I'm going to go elsewhere. So all of the staff that obviously have invested a lot of time effort energy money into training to become teachers in whatever sector um after five years where are they going like what is happening is there any data to suggest like what what is happening to these trained professionals um yeah there's they go into some go into different sectors um again i wouldn't say the majority but some go into different sectors for example primary and secondary um but from the people that i've discussed with that i've done that again not saying quote information published but the people that I've interviewed as part of this process that did that they generally only stayed one or two years within um, those sectors before moving on to something different um, generally kind of HE research or HE lecturing but the ones that have gone secondary school have, have only stuck it out for a few years none that I've spoken to have made careers in secondary schools which again is quite worrying because again I I don't know if it's they're almost taking these feelings with them in the sense that because if you've had five years in FE then you move to a secondary school you're not going to be seen as an NQT or an early career teacher anymore mm. so it I almost feels like you've missed out on that so if you think oh I'm not being supported in FE I'm going to go into secondary school where I'm being supported you're not going to get that support because they'll be like, oh you're a very experienced lecturer you're expected to do the job of course people will be helpful because people are very helpful in education but I feel that even if you make that transition to a supportive environment later you're it's almost still almost too late because you're never going to get that support that you missed which is why I think it's so crucial to have that early careers year within FE um, but people in primary schools I've spoken to have tended to stick out people have gone to HE I've spoken to have tended to stick it out but a lot of people go into things completely different. Um, people go into finance, people go into kind of 
ed tech jobs, um, especially if they're in the teaching and learning environment, they go into teaching and learning in different sectors, mm. um, in development works within firms like that. Um, some have gone into police work, um, I think someone mentioned. Um, yeah, so a lot of it is very different. And outreach as well, people go into outreach and people stay around education, but not necessarily in front of the classroom. So yeah, that's that's generally where they go. So it's quite a split really in terms of where they go. And I think because FE has, you come in with quite a specific skill set, it always gives you an easy route back into the industry you came from. So I think that's why a lot of people come and go as well, because they've got such specific skills in an industry, they can transition back into that quite easily. Because um, if you come straight from university into teaching, it limits the options a bit. But if you've come from industry into FE, it's quite easy to do that U-turn straight back into industry. <laughs> so you see that happen quite a lot as well. Oh, yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, when you mentioned that people are going into other sectors, um, has a salary scale and comparable pay um, had any factor in the kind of longevity of a career in FE? as a teacher because when when you're talking about um, a further education lecturer who teaches for example you know a a subject taught in schools like English um, and if they were an English teacher the progression routes are better in school in the secondary school the holidays are better the pay is better obviously the workload would be different the hours would be shorter but in, in in terms of you know it, could that be a, a reason as to why we're not retaining the staff when it comes to certain subjects like that? Or is that just not yet explored? Um, no, definitely. Salary comes up a lot in the in the interviews I'm doing in the kind of research that is, and the themes that are coming out of this. Yeah, 100%. Um, the salary is very low for trainees, so it's initially quite difficult to get people into it. And then the ones that you do get into it, there's always this sense of I can make more money in industry, especially the hard to find areas such as um, construction and engineering. If you're not doing something with the salary to make it at least equal, they're just going to turn around and say, well, it's much easier being on the, I got out of the work site because it felt like hard work, but when you're coming to me with IVs, EVs, work to mark, student behavior issues, because I think a lot of people don't expect the behavioral issues that can come with further education. I think the title of lecturer can be a little bit deceiving in time, so they allude it more to kind of HE teaching. The element of students wanting to be there and selecting their course, they think is gonna overcome that issue. And mm. the behavior isn't, in some cases, it is more difficult than others, but I don't think people account for it being like secondary. I think it's more similar, to, I'd say it's more similar to secondary school than HE in terms of classroom experience. And I think people think that it's more gonna be more like HE. So I think that plays an element in it, but, and I think they think, well, this is debatably more hard, well, more difficult than being on the work site or doing my previous job. So yeah, they go back to that. But in terms of what you said with the comparison to secondary schools, I feel, yeah, the progression routes are a lot quicker at secondary schools in terms of the kind of micro um, progressions you can make in terms of the TLRs and the variety of job roles that exist. And also, if you think of the amount of secondary schools that exist, there's way more than colleges. So 
there's a lot more jobs going so you can move between institutions a lot quicker um, if you look at colleges within my region I'd say there's probably about six colleges I could reasonably get to work to without um, having a very very long commute so if for example I'm looking for another job in there's six places I can look at conveniently. If they're not hiring, it's like, okay, I guess I'm just gonna have to wait then. And that's not really a reflection on the skill set or my capability to progress. It's there's not that much opportunity about in that sense. So I think, yeah, the quicker progression routes and the perceived amount of places they could work, I think helps to keep people in secondary schools because there's more of that element there. And it does feel more incremental the pay increases in secondary schools. So I think that's definitely something that helps there, especially when you think of FE, you generally have normally teacher, CM, or curriculum manager, head of school, then director, and they're quite big jumps between each one. Yeah. So and you have to wait a long time to to free up that space. Exactly. So and that's again where the coaching and mentoring can come in is how are we preparing these people for those job roles? Are we letting teachers become really, really good and take on lots of responsibility, but we're not looking at them to progress into that role? And then they apply for a job because they feel they're ready because we've been telling them they're doing a great job, then they don't get it. And they think, well, why am I not ready mm -hmm. then? So we need to think of coaching and mentoring in that aspect as well as how are we preparing them to take that jump? Because it is a big jump compared to secondary schools where there's a lot more micro progressions towards that so yeah it's thinking about those kind of pathways and how we can let people know and let people feel like they're working towards a job role rather than just doing their job really well and then being told oh you're doing this job really well but you're not ready for that one yet and then they're saying well why aren't I ready and then it's difficult to see who the responsibility lies with getting them ready. So the manager's assuming that they should be doing it, but then they're assuming the manager should be supporting them in that. So that's, again, where people can feel a bit deflated, not very valued, which contributes to these feelings of I'm going to move sector or I'm, gonna, I'm done with this sector, potentially. So in terms of providing um, a, so a solid base somewhere for these staff members to go to, to get the support that they need and hopefully retain them, um, what kind of strategies would you kind of look towards that or do you think will help that will retain them? It's a difficult one in the sense of what's coming out of the themes at the moment is it's about having the ones that have really, I don't want to say succeeded, because, um, but the ones that have made it past the five years and feel comfortable in FE and are going to go on to have long careers in it. They all seem to have one thing in common, being a trusted, critical friend, being someone that they can go to, they can say whatever they want, and they don't feel any hierarchy in the relationship. They don't feel like they're going to be punished for it. They feel that they can be very open and they can have their issues resolved, even if it's not necessarily them giving advice. It's them just being able to ask them the right questions to help them come to a resolution. And just talking to that person helps things. So That's is this, it. sorry, is this someone who's um, like a peer at the organization or is it like you know having that relationship with a, a superior who doesn't make you feel like they're the, your superior or it's someone neutral so, together 
yeah so it's always someone within the institution um but yeah that's where the difficulty in interpreting this lies because it comes at all levels some people it is their mentor so some people it's who they were assigned to be their pg's mentor they've created this relationship with some people have said my pgc mentor was essentially just there for the tick boxing exercise of it all to get through however i struck up a great relationship with this person informally and then this developed into what i have formalized and described as a coaching relationship they didn't even necessarily recognize it as a coaching relationship until i we had the discussion about what coaching was so what essentially is coming through is that having one person they can sit down have honest conversations with they have good availability they make them feel valued they make them feel there for them just having that interaction is really really supportive but the difficulty with that is how do we create that because of course being someone who's been in charge of creating coaching environments i can't really recognize that in terms of oh you'll pair up really i can say you'll pair up really well with that person i recommend you create this but it's whoever they necessarily essentially lean towards and develop that relationship is it's more thinking how can we formalize that relationship to make it beneficial for both of them if we could be in a position where we create a coaching environment and then we allow people to pick their coaches and then we can reward that relationship with either an increment in pay for providing that support or for providing protected time for them for providing that support then that is something that could be really good but i think a lot of where the issues fall is these relationships are essentially forced and they don't work it's saying right we have to do a coaching initiative so therefore you have to identify a coach and then if they're saying oh this coaching relationship isn't really working for me um are is the institution persistent with it because it has to be done or they're allowing the freedom them the freedom to choose someone else um are we providing a set of coaches are we allowing anybody to be the coach that's it's kind of looking at how can we formalize something that is so powerful because it's informal and again if we're introducing it as a process of the college does it then become hierarchical do people start thinking oh well if this is a formal coaching relationship that's provided by the institution where does this information go is this could this end up in hr if i say something or could this be used against me in a interview potentially so we have to be really careful with how it's perceived because if it's perceived as being hierarchical it's going to stop that openness which people value and it's going to stop people wanting to express themselves fully and it's always going to hinder that trust element so we have to really think about how we can make this a process that people trust rather than something they perceive as a hierarchical agenda and i've seen it done well in many institutions but it also needs to be very yeah you need to be very careful with how much it feels honest and genuine for that individual and how much more importantly how much they trust the process and how much they're willing to be open with the individual coaching them so yeah that's going to be a huge part of because the idea of my research is to essentially provide key takeaways that an institution struggling with this issue can implement and try so it's trying to put it into a statement what could be done is going to be the tricky part when it is so reliant on informal and self kind of selection of the person you trust mm -hmm. 
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> Big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Guardian features comment on a parliamentary report which is calling for an overhaul of secondary education in England. The House of Lords report says the education system for 11 to 16 year olds is too focused on academic learning and written exams. The report also calls for the English Baccalaureate or EBAC introduced by Michael Gove during his tenure as Education Secretary to be scrapped as a school performance measure. The government ambition for 90% of year 10 pupils to be entered for EBAC subjects by 2025 is criticised for being too limiting and not allowing pupils to study a range of subjects. Criticism is also levelled at the overburdened curriculum as a result of content and the 25 to 30 hours of examinations at the end of year 11. The report echoes some concerns expressed by some teachers and school leaders. Recommendations include allowing schools to offer a more varied range of learning experiences, more opportunities to study creative, vocational and technical subjects, and that pupils should have the option to take functional literacy and numeracy qualifications that are equal in value to GCSEs in English and Maths. Former Education Minister under the Conservatives, Joe Johnson says the evidence received was compelling and that change was urgently needed. Former Education Secretary Kenneth Baker said dropping the EBAC would give schools greater freedom. Unions welcomed the calls, but said school funding, recruitment and retention and cutting workload were essential to making any changes a possibility. A Department for Education spokesperson said, we are constantly seeing the success of our reforms, citing recently released PISA rankings and being named best in the West for primary reading out of a comparable 43 countries. The Observer focuses on Scottish schools dropping the PISA ratings and featured an opinion piece by Sonia Soda. The piece lays blame squarely on the curriculum reform which began under the SNP in 2010. It changed the focus from knowledge, emphasising the development of transferable skills. The approach is linked to the idea of preparing children with skills they need for jobs that don't exist yet. 
but the article says this is a theory based on zero evidence. The article goes on to make links to other countries which made similar changes and saw similar declines, including Sweden and France. It also focuses on the impact such a curriculum has on disadvantaged pupils, increasing, it says, the gap between the non-disadvantaged peers. As the House of Lords report levels criticism at a so-called traditional system in England, it seems that Scotland's more progressive approach is being seen in a similarly negative light. The BBC World Service features a piece on universities in Hong Kong. Once attracting talent from around the world, now academics fear Beijing is restricting academic freedom. In 2021 to 22, more than 360 scholars left eight public universities. The turnover rate, 7.4%, is at its highest since 1997, when Hong Kong returned to Chinese rule. Foreign student enrolments have dropped by 13% since 2019. Security guards are now a common sight in universities, ensuring that students and visitors must identify themselves. At the Chinese University of Hong Kong, the democracy wall has been stripped bare and a statue of the goddess of democracy is gone. The 2020 national security law targets subversive behaviour and has seen libraries emptied of books of bad ideologies and a ban on protests. Job applications for professors have dried up and fewer students are enrolling for PhDs in humanities and social sciences. Some academics say that even being an expert on China is a risk these days. Further details on this story can be found on the BBC News website. Pupils in Liverpool got a Shakespeare masterclass from Rafe Fiennes, which they described as weird but outstanding. The Harry Potter actor is starring in Macbeth at Liverpool's The Depot, but was supporting the Friends with Shakespeare event in a local school. The workshop included warm-up games, group work and language analysis. The star also focused on the theme of ambition in Macbeth and linked it to future plans and careers for students. Finally, GCHQ has released its annual brain teaser for UK school children. Its code-breaking challenge is aimed at 11 to 18 year olds. More than 1,000 secondary schools signed up for this year's event, according to the BBC Breakfast programme. It is the third edition of the challenge and it is designed to test code-breaking, maths and analysis skills with each test designed to be harder than the last. There are seven tasks in total and children are encouraged to tackle them in teams as solving puzzles needs a mix of minds. The full challenge can be found on the GCHQ website, just in case you want to test your own skills. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Right, so Joe, you were telling us all about kind of the formalization of a organic process, which is supposed to be kind of driven by your mentee, your coachee, um, and you're supposed to have kind of that that trust and that relationship as as a key component. Um, so when something is formalized, which increasingly everything is, especially in kind of these um sectors where we have to evidence everything, audit everything. How do we maintain that integrity? What kind of suggestions are there um, for that organicness? Yeah, I think there needs to be this is where the separation between mentoring and coaching becomes really apparent because 
mentoring has a very strong place in this element of teacher performance. For example, with um, lesson observations or classroom visits, um, whatever the institution calls them, aren't going too well and intervention is needed to improve a teacher performance, that is completely fine. And you need that for the quality purposes and that's a process that should exist because it has to. But I think people will get this teacher improvement aspect confused with coaching, which is something that is very much for the individual, sought out by the individual. And I think rather than recognize that mentoring and coaching can exist as two different processes, we've switched mentoring to coaching. And I've seen a lot of processes become that. So you have a teaching and learning coach instead of a teaching and learning mentor now but it's this they're doing the same role it's about underperformance and making it better whereas the kind of ethos of coaching is that both parties want to participate in it so if you're calling yourself if you're calling this process coaching technically the individual could turn around and say oh i don't want to participate in this anymore and then as per the rules of coaching then that process can no longer be but of course that's not an option when it comes to performance management so you need to be calling that mentoring because that's what that is you're mentoring someone to get better so I think the only way that this can really exist is to have a mentoring channel for underperformance and encouraging staff to perform better where recognized but you've also got coaching as its individual entity which is a voluntary thing which people tend to participate in and I know that sounds very romantic and a very perfect world situation mm. and it will <laughs> be tough and it, <laughs> and it will take years to catch on because people can say oh why am I going to take time out of my work to do this additional thing that I don't even have to do because most of the time when you hear about coaching initiatives the first question staff ask is do I have to participate and then again as per the rules of coaching or the ethos of coaching it's like well by coaching no it's voluntary but by institution I need to see you doing some form of CPD so yes you do and then there's that kind of gray area in between of that so in a perfect world coaching would be its individual entity that people participate in on a voluntary basis but of course I understand the complications that creates for an institution because it's well how do we allocate funding how do we pay coaches if we're paying them to be coaches or giving them an uplift to be a coach they might not necessarily do any work if nobody picks them so it's almost like having a team of coaches that exist and then if teachers want a coach and support they gravitate towards that person they contact that person and then they begin their coaching support and I think it is something that will work but the institution just has to be very patient and understanding that it will come off a sort of recommendation basis so there'll always be the early adopters the two or three people who know about coaching or mm. someone they like or someone they're already having an informal coaching relationship is they've put themselves up to be a coach so they see them there they're like oh great we'll just formalize what we're doing fine so then once they start doing that in their office, they'll start saying, oh, I've had my coaching today. It's really helping me. I feel really supportive. And then one person in that office might then choose that same coach. They might have a similar experience. They tell another. And then over a five to 10 year period, you would have this really thriving coaching environment that's being created. But it's just that huge 
patience that the institution needs and I fully understand that's not realistic in most cases so that's the perfect world scenario you've got the mentoring the underperformance the improvement is its own thing and you've got the coaching which is its own voluntary thing that also exists but the yeah the logistics within that um, I could talk through in more detail <laughs> but again it'd be very dependent on the institution's situation the institution's culture the institution's outlook the institution's resources so I'm more than happy to discuss with anybody who's coordinating this kind of thing if they give me a bit of information what they would like to see happen and what they're kind of working with and where they're at but to talk about that generically is very difficult because every institution will have different kind of outlooks and policies and rules on this so but in a perfect world that's probably where I could see it going. So with the when you know we re, we've referred today to kind of a time scale of one year that that kind of early career is one year enough or is it too much for some individuals and would you say that um that that is a fluid kind of break where what we could aim towards per se um just um thinking back on my personal experience when when I was actually a teaching learning mentor believe it or not um and we we did this kind of one year program in-house but we also did it for uh, staff that were new so these might have been experienced staff that worked elsewhere that worked in other sectors that worked in the same sector but just you know at college down the road instead and and no matter who it was when they came in we allocated them a mentor so I always wondered like why why was it that one year period why was it that you know because what we found was some people got it they just got it within three months we could I could have confidently said some of them were like fine good to go but others probably like would have needed another two to three years and I just wondered like for that that person that support was then taken away after the year and mm. I could see like year two same issues hadn't quite fixed or resolved or as you know in FE things change all the time so you might have been teaching business one year and then the next year you were teaching IT so just when you thought you got a hold of this kind of curriculum and this kind of student you now have to deal with all of those issues all over again but with a different curriculum and a different cohort of students in a different department so is there, is there a reason why we work towards this one year? Um. It's yeah, well, I think it's more the idea for this to be successful. The idea is that it has to be ongoing. Like it's not about having one year, but I think we state one year because it's like that's the one thing we need to try and get right at the very least. And then the idea is that once you form these really good relationships and you create this really good support, then it continues on an informal basis to an extent. Um, but I think, again, that's where this transition comes between mentoring and coaching, like you mentioned there. Some people need it more. Some people don't need it after three months. So that's, again, where I think we need to keep seeing this as two separate entities, because those who aren't progressing as quickly and need that more mentoring support, whether that's two years, three years, whether that's one year, whether that's six months, as long as they need it, we can provide it through mentoring through performance improvement management through that channel of quality monitoring intervention that channel because that's part of what we have as at all institutions so that can constantly be provided that doesn't have to be provided as part of some form of 
graduate scheme or early career teacher support scheme. So mentoring should and performance improvement should be able to go on as long as required, as long as until that person reaches their level of performance required. Whereas the coach, so it's more like a thing you can switch on and off. And I feel that when mentoring ends, that's when coaching can begin because the person's developed themselves to a level that they're happy with, the institution's happy with. So therefore they don't need mentoring. They don't need advice. They don't need someone looking over them, checking their marking, checking their um, performance in general. And that's when we need them to say, okay, you tell me what you want to work on and I'm going to help you to develop that through questioning and guidance. So that's when you'd turn off the mentoring channel in the institution and then put that person onto the coaching channel. And again, that's voluntary. That isn't, isn't as by per the ethos of coaching. That's not something they have to engage with. But if you said after three months, you're performing well, the institution thinks you're performing well, you no longer require mentoring support. However, we have this team of coaches here who are there to support people to progress in whatever direction they want, I recommend you pick one of these and undertake coaching sessions with them. And mm. then hopefully they say, yes, I, I'm happy to do that. Then they go on, they have their coaching relationship, and then they can continue to develop further within their direction. They feel so, listened to, they feel like they're progressing. It's So that measure of progress then, that's totally up to the teacher and or the lecturer and their kind of needs it's not anywhere that needs to be um, captured for data purposes or anything like that that measure of progress can be I th yeah I think it's something that needs to be measured in terms of how many people are participating in it um, mm -hmm. it needs to be measured in terms of um, like you you need to know who's being who's participating in a coaching relationship but i don't think we need notes i don't think we necessarily need um things to be documented in terms of what was said in that meeting like you can say like general bullet point you can say things like three actions that they decided to work on after our coaching conversation we can share mm -hmm. things like that but like minute by like meeting minutes essentially I don't think that's appropriate because then you have those feelings of well if this is documented where is it documented if it's documented on the internal system can anybody look at it because again mm. that's going against what I've mentioned previously in terms of what makes these relationships so valuable it is that openness it is that trust and if they trust their coach they may not necessarily trust where this information is stored. Can HR just go into this and have a look at it? Can the principal go in and have a look at it? Where is this information going? And that is naturally going to make you more reserved in what you discuss in the coaching session. So you may not actually open up fully, which is required to overcome these issues these individuals have. So for an institution, they need to show that what they're doing is working. So it's good to know who's, the co who's being coached and what the impact of that is. But I just don't think the details need to be shared of what's going on in those meetings. It needs to be trusted that the coach is good um, and they're working towards something beneficial. Um, yeah, you just don't need to. Whereas mentoring, on the other hand, I think that needs to be done in terms of what was the issue with the lesson observation was, what's being done, what the person's working towards when it's performance management. But when it's coaching, it needs to be separated. Brilliant. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources 
to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. <laughs> Cheeky grins. <laughs> Big conversations. <laughs> Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make edtech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. So I think what we're kind of alluding to in what you were saying about coaching and mentoring, the key kind of takeaways I'm gaining from this conversation, Joe, keep me right if I'm wrong, um, is that coaching, mentoring, um, although they can occur at the same kind of organisation, are two very distinct, different things. Mentoring is more about the uh, performance management, the, you know, identifying areas and then fixing them, gaining that knowledge and experience from someone else who's the knowledgeable other almost. Um, and then um, having that, you know, recorded as part of a system or a process, etc. Whereas coaching needs to be led by the member of staff. It needs to be kind of on their terms, a degree of anonymity, um, you know, trust and rapport being very, very key in that relationship um, for them to work towards goals that they want to achieve for themselves in terms of uh, impact and, and, and what they gain out of the coaching. Um, is, that, is that kind of along the right lines did I make any errors there in my notes no I would say that's absolutely spot on um that's that's exactly that's exactly it yeah the main thing for me is just to keep raising awareness that coaching and mentorings are coaching and mentoring are two very separate things and they both have really great use within FE but it's just about institutions recognizing which is the right one to use in the right situation to get the most impact essentially yeah and 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 with that we're hoping that you know with that awareness and with that kind of understanding of the different tools and resources that can be used to to support early career teachers and and teachers that are new to the sector that we will retain more of the workforce. Um, I know earlier on in the conversation, you mentioned, you know, the, the five-year dropout, the five-year fallout. Is there, is there a reason why it seems to be the five-year mark? Is there anything you're thinking that could be, you know, tracked to the five-year period? You know, why not three? Why not eight? Is, is, is five years something significant within the sector or is there something about that time period? Um, yeah, five years is generally the measure. I only use five years because generally the measurable point within um, 
within the research that's published within the education workforce. But it's, I've looked at other ones, three years and things, it's generally between three and five years. So it seems to be a bit of a congregation between that three and five year period. If you make it past five years, you don't generally see too much of a sharp decline. Zero to three years, you see a decline, but it's not huge, but it seems to be between three and five years is where the biggest kind of mass exodus happens. So, and again, it's a bit more complicated as well with an FE of what you classify as the first two years, because a lot of people do a uh, train working on the job scheme. So oh, um, yeah, yeah. they might work Monday to Thursday, then they have their lessons on a Friday for two years. So I would say that those are two working years because you've worked Monday to Thursday on essentially a full, what would be a full timetable if you're working a Friday. So I'd say they're a bit more immersed than someone who was on a PGCE who would only do a few hours a week for one year. So for people in the traditional kind of PGCE through university route, I would say that doesn't count as a teaching year, so to speak, to be included in those five years. Whereas if you've done the two years pretty much full time, just doing your lessons once a week, I'd include that as two teaching years. So that does blur the lines of where these five years kind of land, because I know FE's, FE institutions like to do that a lot. So yeah, I think three to between three and five years is where the most happens. So five years is a good sort of cutoff point for that one. And that's the one that's used to measure it and the most. And after five years, a lot of people start to get promotions and things. So then it starts to become a bit complicated whether they dropped out for that. Um, and then once people start promoting, it's like, well, promotions probably kept you interested and invested in the institution. So the first five years where you don't people do get promotions which is great to see but it's normally that's when they're at the kind of most kind of baseline mm -hmm. level of where they really need the support and when they don't get it they tend to leave where it's provided there's a bit more chance that they'll stay so that's yes. yeah that's generally the best market i found and can i check is there any patterns that you're seeing in, in your research or in in what you've seen in your job role in terms of age or you know different backgrounds of the people who are leaving is it more likely that the younger um uh, ECTs are leaving or you know are you finding any kind of trends in that regard I'm not particularly in terms of trends in terms of demographics and age I so say one thing that FE is quite low on is getting individuals straight out of university people who want to go into teaching generally just get funneled straight into the secondary school route. If you realise very early you want to be a teacher or if you're at, um, at university and you want to go into teaching when it finishes, not many people, are, a lot of people are going to teach first and things like that and programmes like that. So we don't actually get too many people straight out of university. So it's quite hard to measure what the impact of that would be. Um, but in terms of the people that leave, the only thing that tends to be in common is very much um, support, trust and feeling valued it, those are the key themes I haven't heard hardly anything in terms of oh my mentor could have provided me with this strategy or I wasn't supported enough in classroom management I wasn't supported enough in my marking it's rarely workload that seems to be the reason they leave workload is a factor that comes up but it's never never seems to be the breaking point it's more the support that I received with that workload. They never say workload was the issue or if someone would have taught me this technique or reduced time marking books, maybe I would have stayed. It's always 
I just didn't feel supported kind of across the board. It was a general feeling that I was on my own and I just felt that I could get something better elsewhere. So the, that's the key theme. It's the holistic elements around everything else that goes in FE that tends to be coming through. And that's the one commonality I'm starting to see through all of this. Oh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Joe. Um, I'd love to know how the research spans out and I hope you'll be back to kind of enlighten us with um, with the end of your thesis. Um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, listeners, if you'd like to um, contact Joe, Joe is on LinkedIn, so I'm sure you won't mind you dropping him a quick message if you want to know more about it or how some of the strategies and solutions offered today could be implemented or explored in your organisations. Is that right, Joe? Is that all right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm giving you always, some extra work happy. there. <laughs> no, always happy to discuss it. <laughs> Um, so have you got anything else you'd like to mention to the listeners, Joe, before we close? No, that's all from me. Um, yeah, just hope, hope they enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.